Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Right on. Yeah, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance. I have some clients online, various places, teach for Globe University, and I'm out here in Montana. Ooh. Oh, you know, I don't even, yeah. I, I just assume that you're globetrotting somewhere now. I don't know. <laughs> I can't yeah, tell. for the Thanksgiving family thing, visiting Jody's family, so oh, I'm good. Okay, at least you're not lecturing somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, this is a yeah, pretty easy trip, so yeah. Well, cool. Um, everyone, we have sort of a Thanksgiving special, I guess. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to, We'll, we'll do the news and everything. We'll have our topic of the day. And then I'm going to bring in my wife, Kelly, as a guest in the second part of the topic of the day after the three of us sort of talk from a lay perspective about some of this mental health stuff. But the, the topic will be entitled something along the lines of you might be a strength athlete if. Uh, and then Kelly's going to bring us some lessons from the DSM. Uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual is how psychologists and counselors and psychiatrists um, diagnose like what are the criteria for narcissistic disorder you know or obsessive compulsive disorder or that sort of thing she'll talk about what's serious what's not and you know you could kind of see where on this spectrum maybe you fit as a strength or muscle athlete so um let me mention before i forget uh our fall contest uh and i'll put something on our facebook page i haven't really aggressively launched this but if you can make two tweets and get two iTunes reviews for us, all you have to do is email me and say, hey, I did it, uh, and we're going to do honor system because we're, we're cool like that. <laughs> and I'll send you some swag. <laughs> I'll send you something cool. So uh, two Facebook tweets about Iron Radio, uh, honest, whatever you want, uh, and then two iTunes reviews. So it had to be you and get somebody else to make a review. But that's all you have to do. I've got a couple of things in front of me. I've got some mugs. Uh, mouse pads. I've got some old DVDs, actually. Like, here's one, uh, The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. Um, a couple of fun, different things to hand out for the fall funds drive. And again, I think I'll start a thread maybe on our Facebook page as well. So that's our, our two-by-two two contest uh, for the fall. Again, two tweets, two iTunes reviews, and you win. It's just it's that simple. Um, having said that, let me get to some of the news here. Strength and Muscle Sport News. A lot of this starts with the a new uh, monthly newsletter from the Institute of Food Technologists. I know I've been mentioning them lately a little bit. I'm going to run down some of these um, just titles, you know, little blurbs, and one or two of them uh, I will I pulled a study on because I'm like, okay, I want to go see the actual source. So first with the blurbs. This first one says, U.S. Organic Board removes carrageenan from the allowed substances list. 
The U.S. Department of Agriculture Standards Board has voted to remove carrageenan from the national list of allowed substances and organic foods. Uh, carrageenan is a generic term referring to a family of linear polysaccharides that are extracted from species of red seaweeds. Uh, I don't know why they removed that. They, I guess they considered it uh, more of an additive, you know, than something that was naturally occurring. Uh, we could probably do a whole episode on organics. Uh, but, yeah, carrageenan is often a thickener. If, if people aren't familiar, it gives some better mouthfeel to thin foods and, and, you know, like gums and that sort of thing. Uh, let me go down the ones that I'm not going to touch on. Next one, probiotics may enhance cognitive function in persons with Alzheimer's. Now, I know if you're thinking, oh, Lowry, I don't have Alzheimer's, you know, move on. But uh, this is very brief. A new study published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience shows that eating yogurt or health drinks that contain probiotics may improve the memories of people with Alzheimer's disease. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to help your memory, right, because these people have amyloid plaques and Actually, Grant, who's been on the show a few times, has uh, he's doing some research with that, how coffee might slow down Alzheimer's progression. Um, anyway, so probiotics might help with that if you have a, a loved one and their memory is going. Next, U.S. kids continue to consume, consume too much salt. I'm not even going to dig into that one. We, we, we know what a train wreck our society's in. Kids are eating, you know, 50% <laughs> at least more salt than they than they should and it, it does weird things beyond just hypertension risk so um replacing full fat dairy with vegetable fats and whole grains may lower heart disease risk mm. now, now this one is a little controversial mm. with fitness people i think yeah i wouldn't um, guess that no, no me either um a study published in the american journal of clinical nutrition and we know that's a premier mm. one shows that while full yeah. fat dairy products may not incre increase heart disease risk okay good thank you Replacing those fats with vegetable fats, uh, polyunsaturates, or whole grain carbs may lower the risk of heart disease. So that, to me, that's sort of mixed message, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, but what I'm taking from that is, okay, I'm not going to worry about the, the whole milk thing. Let's face it, with lifters, we have to think about ourselves in a way. Like, I am not going to tell a young man or woman who's trying to gain weight, don't drink whole milk. Oh, you know, it's got saturated <laughs> fat. It might hurt your heart disease risk. Well, now this looks like it doesn't even do that. But you got to think about your goal, you know, but let's face it, chugging whole milk for 12 weeks is not going to ruin your health. Um, as far as industry stuff, there's just two. Almond Pro is debuting an almond protein powder. So Almond Pro, oh. that, that company, if they do that, I think they're going to have to spike it with leucine or something. I mean, nuts are not a bad source of protein, but I don't know. You know, I'm looking for. Yeah, it seems like you can make. Everything out of almonds and coconut now. I've just realized <laughs> pretty much anything you ever wanted to make, I think you can make out of those two things now. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> uh, and then this uh, last one. Four U.S. cities have voted to pass the sugar drink excise tax. So mm -hmm. that sin tax, sort of, that mm -hmm. sugary drinks. You know, whatever. You know, I think people should have the right to do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but... The flip side of that, and, and again, this is controversial. Maybe people can write in and tell us what they think. But I, I mean, even cigarette smoking, I'm not going to do that. But if somebody wants to do that, you know, just I say tax, make it sort of a luxury tax. I think Canada does it like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just so people acknowledge, you know, this is going to be more expensive. And I like the big warnings that they put on the cigarettes now. Have you seen that? Like if you travel and you go into like the duty-free shop because they're in the, the huge, you know, containers. 
like on some countries, I think U.S. may even have this too on the side. It's basically a black and white panel that says, this will kill you. Oh, <laughs> like, I have no, seen that. I've seen text at all. <laughs> yeah, in Britain. It's like that in Britain too. I mean, they. it's, it's actually, I don't know. Uh, they spend all this time on the graphic blandishments of the of the label. You know, you get all these different yeah. uh, clever graphics, and there's just this black blob across the top that says "Smoking Kills." You know, yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> hard to feel, yeah. uh, hard to get in the mood, whatever that mood might be. If uh, yeah, with that blaring at you. Okay, these yeah. are the two that I pulled from, just so I don't keep rambling. And again, you guys interject here. Tips for communicating science. Here's the blurb, and then I'll get to the the full thing. In an age when consumers are demanding transparency in every aspect of their food and technology, um, everyone has a voice that can be heard, and at least people not knowing what to believe. God, that's true, right? We talked about that in the age of the internet. <laughs> Everybody has a voice. There's no, there's not editors saying that's bunk. <laughs> you can't publish yeah. that. Uh, in a new perspective post, this is a blog. Author and food communicator, Caven Synapathy offers some do's and don'ts for communicating uh, science to the public in an impactful way. So here it is. Um, do's and don'ts. Here's a couple of things that, I, that struck me about, you know, lifters. Um, one is present facts in a cultural context. I think that's one of the things that we actually do reasonably well here on the show. You know, like we're not going to come at this from some other perspective. It's always like, how does this impact a lifter, and oftentimes it may be what we're interested in ourselves. You know, I wouldn't do that, or oh, I can twist that to prevent overtraining, or my nervous system recovery, or you know what I mean. There's always something uh, in in a, and again, not a cultural context in the way she means it. I think, but we do have a subculture, right? We have different values and and that sort of stuff, oftentimes, and than an average person. You know, the, the average person hears the word freak, and that's bad. And in our in our you know, fields, it's kind of good. <laughs> so stuff like that. So present it, you know, consider your audience, I think is what she's saying. And that might be a no brainer, but, um, and another one, and this is a good one. I, I learned this writing stuff for T nation. And I feel I, you probably were responsible for weeding out some of this shit, but it says not letting the vocal, <laughs> min not letting the vocal minority distract you from your message. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's plenty of that. Yeah. You know, plenty of that. Because the minority of that, that's what's hard with online stuff now, too, as you guys all know, is that you can have a couple of people that are, you know, just nut jobs, but be really loud and show up mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. And people then start thinking, well, oh, this guy or gal has got to be an expert. They they talk with authority and they're everywhere. So, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Not realizing that if they're constantly online, they're not getting experience or going to school or or any of the above. You know, they're just spending right. time online. It's, it's usually not turning out high quality articles either. It's uh, comments and other random things too. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and you will get that. I mean, we could go down a whole episode probably of the vocal minorities. You know, like there's the um, fresh milk people, you know, the um, non pasteurized milk. Oh, the pundits. raw milk? Yeah, raw milk people. Man, they are passionate. You know, they call pasteurized milk dead milk and, and, I understand their point about killing some of the good bacteria and this and that, but you know we got to balance that with not getting listeria, you know, or letting farmers actually put their milk on the shelf for <laughs> enough days for someone to buy it. Uh, you know, that's just one of many. You know, but there's definitely 
Well, I mean, think about how many different fads there are that we deal deal with, from IIFYM to GOMAD to, you know, it just goes down this big list. And some of these things are a little uh, fringe. This might sound funny to lifters, but there's even an extreme sect of vegetarians called fruitarians. I'm not shitting you. Yeah. And they only eat fruit. Oh, my God. Could you imagine the lack of protein and, oh, so many nutrients? Holy God. Yeah. Anyway. And everything has to be one extreme or the other. Right. You can't have the, you know, the moderate people aren't really very vocal, you know, so it's always this more extreme of the other thing. And like years ago when I was talking about even intermittent fasting, I'm like, I can guarantee at some point there'll be people trying to do one, two, three, four, you know, seven day fasts, not necessarily for, you know, health or possibly cancer risk or things of that nature, but just to be more extreme than the next person, you know, so. Yeah. God, it sounds like the way politicians talk. You know, in the modern day of politics, nope. it sounds like they're just all trying for one-liners, you know, 10-second one-liners to one-upsmanship, one you know, with each other instead of something more substantial. I don't know. Uh, okay, this next one is future of produce in U.S. menus. Uh, it says, much is being made of the recent focus on fresh produce in restaurant menus. This intense focus... Uh, is mostly with restaurants, but the phenomenon is widespread. It says many trends have led to this increase in plant foods and produce, uh, and the timing is right for true produce innovation to occur. And then they talk about why we're actually looking at, um, you know, fresh produce, fruits and vegetables. And I'm not against this stuff, right? I mean, it's important to understand that uh, just because we, I think we're all more or less pro-meat. Uh, Mike, I know you've had periods of not eating red meat in the past. but mm-hmm. You know, I, I, we're all, you got to be about the veg. I mean, anyway, it says the, oh, yeah. one of the trends is a focus on weight loss. It shifted from what they call designer diets, like the Scarsdale diet, into what they call technical diets, like Adkins or Paleo. Uh, and it says one good outcome of this, uh, I, you know, we were just talking about extremists, but one of the outcomes of this, I think, is greater interest in the functional effects of food on the human body. Like, how does my body work and that sort of thing? Although... I'm not sure I completely agree with this because like so many of the the gluten-free pundits, they have no idea what gluten does in their body. They're they're just bandwagoning, (laughs) you know, just jump on the bandwagon. Um, It says also there's an alternative category that has moved well beyond the specialty nut butters or dairy categories. We could probably all think, I mean, like you were saying, Mike, everything's made out of almond now. Um, You know, when we grew up, it was just... Peanut butter, that, that was your nut butter. And now there's almond butter and cashew butter, and some of this stuff is expensive. Uh, but it says now it's moved into categories, even in the general population, like protein, different types of alternative sweeteners, flowers, even waters. And that's true. And I think a lot of that stuff hits, it might hit our fitness industry first. You know, we're just so eager to jump on board with, a, whether it's like a stevia for a sweetener or a lower carb flour, uh, I, I think... I would argue a lot of fitness people get to that stuff first, start guinea pigging, you know. Um, anyway, and it says also exposure to foods from other countries lets us know that ours is not the only way to do it. You know, they, and they talk about a lot of Asian cultures, Indian, Mediterranean, Nordic cuisines, uh, stuff like that have forced Americans to rethink. And there's also a food uh, distribution thing too. Um, we can get food, even though locally grown food is is helpful in many ways it's also good to get some stuff outside of your area 
I mean, think about my like the fruit availability for me right now in Ohio would probably be limited to like apples, <laughs> you know, and I can I can eat almost anything right now. So that's from Maeve yeah, Webster. Very funny that I was thinking about this the other day that at least in the U.S. and most areas, it's this very interesting paradox where. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but the amount of new foods and just access to different, you know, fruits for micronutrition, it's probably higher now than I think it's ever been, especially like what you were saying, Lonnie, with, you know, us primarily living in the Midwest and it becoming winter. But paradoxically, like most of the, you know, dietary recalls I get from people, they seem to eat less of micronutrition rich stuff than I've ever seen before, Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is amazing that now we have more you know selection especially if you travel to other you know smaller countries you know you have whatever is locally there you know i've often thought of taking some local person from there and dropping them into like a u.s grocery store and their their eyes must just go bananas out of their head right the fact you have this much selection but yet people are creatures of habit and tend to eat the same things all the time yeah, yeah, that's good and bad. Even Fortress, when he when yeah. he first moved down here, I remember years ago, he goes, "Oh my God, you have a whole aisle for candy bars," you know, mm. and yeah. he just doesn't <laughs> see that in Canada as much. I don't know, maybe, maybe things are moving in that direction up there too. But yeah, that variety and choice. I bet we have listeners from other countries who are like, oh "My God, you guys can get anything so cheap," you know, you know, oh, F, yeah. F you guys. <laughs> you <know? laughs> uh, but okay, I have one more. Uh, and this one will interest probably both of you, but uh, Mike, you have a lot of background in this. It says third exposure to a reduced carb meal lowers evening postprandial insulin response uh, and insulin resistance. This is from Poju mm. Lin and Katerina Borer from the University of Michigan. It was just published. I noticed it took them a year to get this in print after they submitted it. Wow. So um, it says postprandial hyperinsulinemia, so high insulin, high blood sugar, and insulin resistance increase the risk of type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Okay, we know that. Uh, it says, post-meal hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia also occur in metabolically healthy subjects who consume high-carb diets, particularly after evening meals. Now, I've been saying this for a very mm. long time that we don't metabolize carbs that well in the evening, and I know um, like the whole car backloading people uh, disagree with that but I, i'm just pointing at real research so let me give you some background this isn't from me but they say the current high carb consumption falls within 45 to 65 percent of daily calories according to the usda uh or u.s departments of agriculture and health and human services uh, this study explores the extent to which the recommended high daily carb intake contributes to evening post-meal glucose intolerance and again, in the evening, your carb tolerance is just not as good. And again, there is lots of literature. I've written on T Nation for a long time about this, but this is just a new paper. And it's just pointing out some of these physiology facts. Um, it says, post-meal hyperglycemia and delayed or protracted hyperinsulinemia, so insulin going up and staying up, sort of, not maybe not doing its job as well, are prevalent in metabolically healthy individuals in the evening, but not in the morning when the same carb load is delivered. Uh, and then it goes on to say, uh, insulin action for the same carbohydrate load is lower in the evening 
uh, than in the morning. In other words, it's just you're a little bit insulin resistant in the evening. And this could be partly because you're less muscular activity, but it's also about secretion. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is the first time I haven't seen this. It says a circadian influence was recently identified in beta cells in, of your pancreas ability to secrete insulin in the evening. So there's actually a sort of that chronobiology thing kicking in your pancreas is just not uh, secreting insulin as well. Your tissues aren't responding to it as well, that kind of thing. So here's what they did. Four groups of eight metabolically healthy weight-matched postmenopausal women in this case, they were pro provided three isocaloric meals. So the calorie content was the same. They didn't want that muddling it. A pre-trial meal and two meals during the trial day. Uh, they contained either 30% or 60% carbohydrate with and without two hours of moderate exercise beforehand. So they tried to throw in the exercise component too. And that's something that interests me as well because a lot of the um, eat carbs at night people, they build in this idea that, oh, well, you just trained your ass off and, and that will help uh, kind of thing. Uh, results, the third low-carbohydrate meal but not high-carbohydrate meal reduced evening insulin area under the curve by 39% without exercise and by 31% after exercise. And then it also talked about evening insulin resistance was reduced after the third low-carbohydrate meal by 37% without exercise and 24% drop after exercise. So again, we want that to drop, right? Insulin resistance. Conclusions, evening postprandial insulin, and there's some other responses. They measured all kinds of things, glucagon, free fatty acids, GIP. Um, but insulin resistance declined by over 30% after three meals that limited daily carb intake to 30% compared to the regular 60% carbohydrate meals. Uh, and they said the dietary impact, this delayed adaptation to slowly getting a better insulin state was independent of exercise. That's interesting to me. I wouldn't have guessed mm. that. Um, mm -hmm. It says there is delayed intestinal adaptation to low-carbohydrate diets. Uh, and then it says they suspect that maybe the slightly blunted effect of exercise, it didn't just not only did it not help, but it slightly blunted it was because they suspect um, an elevation in free fatty acids uh, from the exercise. So um, I guess the take-home message there is you can't just have a single low-carb meal and expect like magic you know, to correct your insulin and all that. But after, after the third low-carb meal, again, we're talking 30% carbs instead of 60 like recommended, um, people's insulin resistance and, and you know, that sort of thing uh, improved. It's a little bit of delay. So what do you think about that, Mike? Does that? Yeah, I'd have to pull the study. It sounds very interesting. Um... It's one thing I've always wondered about when reading and research, too, and it's cool that they did a sort of repeated exposures on it, and they had exercise and stuff in there, too, because there's a little bit of data showing that, you know, how fast can people sort of switch from, you know, one sort of type of, you know, fat to carbohydrates, so sort of metabolic flexibility. Sure. And some of the stuff looking at, in essence, how well if we overfeed you, let's say, fat, or we overfeed you carbohydrates, how fast does your metabolism sort of transition to using that as a fuel, right? So more metabolically flexible, the faster you can switch to that sort of incoming fuel source. So this may be a little bit similar to that too, that it may take a few more exposures for healthy people to kind of, 
you know, transition from where they were from before, which, you know, that kind of makes sense. You know, I think a lot of people think, well, if we do one meal, then you're going to have this huge change right away. It's just, just like training, right? You're not going to get strong after one training session. Right. Yeah, maybe just a little tiny bit if we could find some way to measure it, but it's kind of the repeated exposures over time and time again. Yeah. I like that this reinforces, I tell students this all the time, your gut is a lot like your muscles. You know, if you don't, like if you stop yeah. eating, it will atrophy. You know, you can you can coax adaptations from it according to your environment. It's the same thing, you know, it's same kind of thing. And it's interesting here that it's emphasizing that even without exercise, you you could actually become a better carbohydrate metabolizer. metabolizer. It just takes maybe three meals, you know. So that's actually quite fast, at least for a, you know, some of what they're measuring here. So, Phil, yeah, and that I think you said was in healthy individuals. So that I would suspect would be delayed in you know type two diabetics or borderline metabolic issues. Right. No. Agreed. Phil, from the front lines, what kind of are, are people still doing a lot of low carb stuff? I mean, you're dieting. No, are you uh, doing low carb? No, I'm not low carb. Um, not right now. The first two weeks of my diet was. Um, I don't. It's not as much of a fad now. I don't think. As it was. I mean, I think there's still people doing it. It's still very effective, um, in my opinion. But I don't think it's it's where it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was everything. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like everybody. That's all that was talked about. And now, uh, I don't know. You're seeing more of the, if it fits your macros type thing. And <laughs> for, for lack of better terms, you're seeing a lot more of, uh excuses to eat bad crap <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but i love my pop um, yeah <laughs> but uh uh yeah no i mean from what i've seen the people that are kind of serious about it are still kind of middle of the road and just decide to eat good food like i'm eating sweet potatoes and rice and white potatoes and things like that okay. um you know so it's more i've just taken all the junk out yeah, you know, it is remarkable so, how far that will get you. Yeah, a long ways. Yeah. And so yeah, the first month, anytime I were to in the past have done twenty week diets, the first month is just that I just remove the crap, like no more, yeah. no more. Uh, and it's not like I eat a completely trashy diet, but in our house we we define healthy versus on diet a little bit, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Like olive yeah. oil mixed vegetables, delicious, healthy awesome but i'm not going to wolf down that in the same way you know if i'm trying to cut yes. you know yeah or or grab a i i'll start instead of buying the occasional plain uh hamburger or something mm -hmm. i just switch to grilled chicken you know sandwiches yeah. stuff like that but yeah you could clean it up and make a lot of progress just by not necessarily with portion control because that sucks yeah. you know yeah. i don't know if if men are poorer at that uh, I'm not sure if there's a gender difference, but I was always – I hate eating postage stamp portions of my favorite foods. Screw that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'd rather fill up on some fiber and protein, something like that. Yeah. You know. yeah. yeah. I've often wondered if – and I haven't looked at the data on this. I haven't seen any. Maybe you guys have. If, if men are more subjective to the visual feedback from food, right? Because it seems like guys tend to – exactly what you said, Lonnie, do better with eating pretty high volumes of food but you know just changing the caloric density obviously right. women do better on this too but in my experience it just seems like guys tend to be more sensitive like you guys said with the amount right if i tell them okay you're eating you know x amount of this and i'll cut it in half and i leave the exact same food and everything the same 
And they look at it on the plate and they go, well, this isn't anything to eat. Right, yeah. <laughs> just, it just seems to have that more neurologic component, I guess. I don't know. You know, they say when it comes to sex, men are much more visually oriented. So that's, you know, right. that does suggest, yeah, maybe men are a little more, uh, I don't know, shallow <laughs> like that. I don't know. <laughs> but Shallow yeah. and simple. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, but we had a listener mail as well. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. Mike, you have that in front of you, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is from a awesome listener and lifter, Nathan. He says, long-time listener, about two years now, first-time emailer and show supporter. So thank you very much for that. We greatly appreciate it. Yep. Uh, show is becoming a supporting member is clear, but how much is given in the weekly shows? Something that continues to be impressive. Keep at it. There are thousands of us who look forward to the shows each week. Awesome. So thank you very much for that. Uh, so his question is, I thought I'd email a question regarding compound lifts and CNS, so central nervous system recovery. A very popular lifting program is the 5x5 model, popularized by Pavel and shared on the internet, where the idea is you should perform five sets of five of the squat bench press, and overhead press. Uh, then he has also got a note that deadlifts are reduced to five sets of one rep. So when you are able to complete all five reps of five sets, you increase the weight for the next training session. The weight used is supposed to be around, I think he means this, 7 to 8 RM. I think he probably means 70 to 80% RM, or would be my guess. Uh, I know I'm in a strength phase right now, uh, bulk season, <laughs> and training four times per week. I'm not doing five sets of five for deadlifts because that would be crazy, but I am trying to follow the program for squats and upper body lifts. I noticed that recovery from bench and overhead press is generally fairly predictable, but as I increase the weight for the five by five on the squat, set to set recovery time increases, and I feel pretty slammed. However, if I work with triples, I can get up to 90 plus percent of my max and feel less burnt out. So my question is this, should the squat be given the same programming considerations as the deadlift for the 5x5 program? Uh, how should heavy squats, which are higher intensity, be programmed in a strength phase while also increasing size as a secondary goal? Thank you very much. What do you say, Mr. Phil, to start it off? Oh man, um, well, just I lots mean, of stuff in there. Yeah, there's lots of stuff in there. Uh, basically, you know, if, if if you're doing five by five, do five by five, and you can lower the weight to where you're not slammed, and then slowly raise the weight, and hopefully you continue to be not slammed. Um, okay, yeah. Don't start. Basically, don't start with a weight that slams you. You know, yeah. start with some start with something you can handle and increase your ability as you go. Is what I would say. Um, because no, I mean I'm a I'm a big fan of of lower rep on on deadlift and a bit higher rep on squat, but uh, in in general. But you know I always start people well into their ability, and you know so let's say we start off at seventy percent of their ability with their goal after so many weeks we're hoping to be at one hundred and five or one hundred and ten percent of their ability, and still not be slammed. So you know basically you start down the hill and go for the climb up. So kind of start in a valley and run in there for a while before you start heading up the hill. And then hopefully by the time you're going up the hill, you know, 70% is now actually 68% because you've gotten stronger from those first few weeks of working within your ability. So you're kind of trying to stay ahead of that strength curve is what I would say. I mean, just start a little lighter or start with those triples and then let's try to increase that to 
you know, three sets of three and two sets of four and then yeah. four sets of four and one set of three, mm-hmm. you know, just slowly add on to where you're not totally slammed. Um, I don't, other than that, I mean, heavy squats are going to kind of slam you. So right. <laughs> you know, it's just part of life, too. So it's realizing that, I mean, like I, I squatted on Monday and literally I did not feel right until Friday morning. And yeah. what did I get to do again? Yesterday I got to do 20 sets of two squats. Oh, <laughs> the day 20 I felt sets of two. 20 wow. sets of two. And, you know, that was the first day I felt right. And now I don't feel quite right again. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Phil. But by Monday, I should. You know, it, I'm not as slammed as I was, and then I'll get another hard set in. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, but start- you've also done a lot of squats in your life, too. Right? Yes. So, someone who's listening to this could start at 10 or 5 or even one <laughs> set of two if they're new. So, they don't yeah. have to start at your 20. Yeah. And slowly yeah. increase it up. So, I mean, I would say just start within your, within your ability. I think that's where a lot of people mess up is they start at the end. <laughs> you know? So, um, they start at like max effort and where are you going to go? You know, I'm sorry. You're not getting that stronger in a week. So, Oh yeah, true. Hey, let me, let me toss this out, Phil. It's, I, it was always my understanding cause I have not been, I know this is blasphemous to you, but I have not been a huge deadlifter in, in my lifting career. I've always loved the squat, but I, my understanding of listening to you and Rob and really all you guys is that actually deadlifts are harder. Uh, that are more devastating, really head dead. Yeah, they're the hard hardest, to recover from. Not not squat. Is is that accurate? Yeah. I would say it. Yeah, I mean, let's like even my lifters. Like we take our last deadlifts before competition, several weeks before we take our last heavy squat. Oh, the deadlift. Mm. The deadlift somehow. Well, it's it's a grinding lift. You know, what I'm saying you're starting from a dead stop, and it just seems to wreck you in a way that the squat doesn't. That a heavy squat doesn't. That makes and, sense. You know. Uh, and I think a lot of it might be that just dead stop position mm-hmm. um, and having to grind out a lift. No matter what, it's going to be, if it's heavy, it's going to be kind of a grind. Whereas you can get a heavy squat, come out of that rebound, and still make it fairly easily. So, um, yeah. That's a good so. point from a CNS person. I mean, a squat, gravity gets the lift going. Yeah. You know, once you, you unrack it, you step back, the downward motion starts it, and gravity is on your side to get the momentum going, and you kind of... Yeah you know, recoil out of the, the bottom and with a deadlift. Because yeah. you guys were saying, especially the first, like, six inches are what's yeah. so brutal. Because if you pull out of a rack, you don't have quite the the recovery mm-hmm. devastation. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's a nice thing, too. Like, if I mean, I'm a big fan of the fairly high-frequency work for deadlifts for intermediate lifters. But the big catch with that is that you're not even anywhere remotely close to 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, some of it will be block poles, some of it will be different types of poles. Um, and I have seen that if, if you get like a real grinder that's, you know, pretty close to your 1RM, for whatever reason, that just seems to torch pretty mm-hmm. much everyone for a long time. Mm-hmm. But if you can stay away from that and you can keep the bar speed pretty good, and again, you've got some lifters that are more bar speed versus grinding and all that kind of stuff. Um, what I've seen personally is that seems to allow you a fair amount more volume. Mm-hmm. The downside then is if your goal is to be, you know, stronger in a one RM, it's not quite as hyper specific either. You know, so you're always trying to ride this, mm, how much volume do I want to put hoping for a nice positive transfer. 
versus I want to go in and work up to a heavy single because that's more specific to my goal. But I'm going to generate a lot more fatigue from that too. So how do I, you know, kind of weigh those things out? Yeah. So. I suppose to my non-power lifter mind, um, the five by five is, it's an attempt at a certain level of volume, right? And 90% yes. loads, you know, Oof. it's going to That's con a little heavy. Right, right, exactly. That That's a little heavy. That's going to almost contradict uh, an effort to get in 25 total repetitions in a certain, mm -hmm. you know, workout. So Yeah, I'm thinking more like 70%. So Yeah. Well, like you said, progress. That was a great, great yeah. point, right? Yeah. You, you want to... You got to progress upward. The pur purpose is to build volume as you're moving up in weight. And w yeah. if you're pulling ninety percent of your max off the floor, there's just no progression model there. Yeah, you yeah. Know. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. So, okay, good stuff. Yeah. The, the simplest version of that I've used for new lifters is just do the first week, just do one set of five reps, and then take that same weight, let's say seventy percent of your one RM, and then just add another set for you know the next four weeks. You know, at the end of that, you're at 70% at a five by five, you know, not super heavy. Um, but I found that most people given enough rest from one set to the next set can usually add volume relatively easily. Mm -hmm. And that way, like Phil said, you're, you're getting that kind of run in your, I, I call it to, you know, kind of rigging the system to win the first couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, you know, you're, you're doing pretty good. So you allow that kind of adaptation from one week to the next. Yeah, I like it. I what I used to do when I would do strength phases, and I mean I'm I'm not exactly heroic on the strength scale, but I would do what Phil was saying. I would start with like five sets of three, and then I and then build that into like three, yeah. threes and fours, and then mm -hmm. mostly fours, and then mm -hmm. fours and occasional fives. You know what I mean? And I would add, yeah, or even add a set instead of adding reps in a set, because like he's saying, mm -hmm. fives kill you. You know. And maybe yeah. threes are a little different, so I would start with three sets, and then yeah, but after a couple of weeks, I'm doing four, and then you know, and then five, and I would add it with sets because you're fresher by adding sets. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's that's where I think most people mess up is they think they get too stuck into a set rep scheme, and I prescribe a lot of total reps. It's like okay, we're doing twenty this week. Well, what does yep. that mean? That means you're doing twenty, and then next week we're doing twenty-five. <laughs> You know, and I just want 25 good reps. I really don't care. It could be 25 singles. Yep. You know, as long as we get 25 good ones, we just did more work. So. You know what? To me, you're you're like the physician of powerlifting because that's a dose. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. dosing yeah. them with a certain amount Dose of iron. Yep. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. All right. I'll tell you what. Uh, let's go to break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, you might be a strength athlete if. And this isn't just a joke. Uh, we're actually going to take... Uh, stab at this the three of us and discuss a, a few questions about personality issues maybe and listeners you can see if these apply to yourself or maybe someone you know um, and we'll be back hey listeners this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry if you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world 
and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Fall and soon winter will be upon us. As the holidays approach and your thoughts turn to giving, please consider your friends here at ironradio.org. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio type format, the show is listener supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 per month, you can become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page, or click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Thanks for helping to create a place for better internet programming for all strength and muscle sports. And happy holidays. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, we are back. Uh, we're going to talk about you might be a strength athlete if, and then eventually uh, my wife Kelly, Kelly Lowry, she's a counselor, and uh, she's going to teach us a little bit from the diagnostic statistical manual. But let's just get some, our sort of quasi-lay opinions on this. So first question for Phil um, nar is about narcissism. <laughs> Not yourself necessarily, but uh, have you seen narcissism in strength sports? 
Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, it, it, it runs, it might even be part of it, sadly. Um, it's just, everybody gets a little, you know, excessive over their, their looks, I think. I mean, usually that's what starts everybody at training, no matter what they think about it. Usually people don't come in and they're not solely just about, I'm going to get strong. You know, there's some level of self-love if you will <laughs> right in there. yeah and yeah. they're looking at themselves in the mirror even if it's you know i mean just being bigger right in agreed. general agree you know and that's what people forget it's not just about being lean it's like i want to be a big sob you know? yeah. <laughs> and so they're always looking not big enough never big enough never big enough and i think you see that more in strength sports than you do never lean enough which is more the bodybuilding side yeah. it's like and I'm, I fall, like, I'm down to 242 right now on no. my diet. And I'm like, dude, I'm a freaking twink. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I need to be still bigger I, than me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I need, yeah. to be, I need to be 280. And I look at myself as like, man, there's nothing left of me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but they've, Compared to the average person, I'm still pretty freaking big. You right. know, you know, so, I yeah, to, I mean, it's in there. I need to ask Kelly about body dysmorphic, like some of the, you know, the different, um, uh, the ways that we look at ourselves, like you know, like most people are not going to look at you, Phil. I'm, you know, there's not. I'm going to oh, twink. <laughs> you know, this guy's a beanpole. <laughs> you know, but I, sometimes I think the narcissism. A right, the, the the bigger, like must be bigger. That's very mm -hmm. common, I think, with successful bodybuilders and powerlifters. The bodybuilders yeah. who aren't obsessive about getting bigger. To me, they're not really bodybuilders. They're just dieters. I don't know. Yeah. And there are yeah. guys that are like that, but. Um, I think the narcissism, and again, this is my lay perspective or ignorant perspective, but that extends to big and strong. Like, I think powerlifters can exhibit narcissism and self-importance like the bodybuilders do. It's just a little bit, it's less Different. about the pretty and more about the badass, maybe, mm -hmm. if, yes. that, if that makes any sense. Um, and I don't know, it's not all bad. You know, I don't believe that you got to be a little self-centered in life to have to be successful at any goal. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that narcissism isn't all bad. It can go overboard, yes. Um, and, you know, you're kind of never happy. But, I mean, like I said, that's that's not that bad of a thing. Because, I like, I try and tell people, let's set little goals. But let's set at least one goal that's huge. Because, I mean, it's like a, a buddy of mine, one of my athletes, like his dad offered him a, an absurd amount of money if he makes it into a military academy he's like yeah the kid will probably never make it but he's gonna be a lot further ahead than he was just by trying yes you know? no right if i if i have this goal to be mr olympia even if i never make it i'll probably be pretty freaking jacked just from the effort yeah <laughs> you know, and a lot further than i was you know i can so. tell you my brother and i back in the in the 90s early 90s we would always compare ourselves to national competitors you know and people mm -hmm. in the local local gym are like you guys are beasts and it's like we're pointing we're we're thinking we're twinks because we're pointing way up here to something that's frankly unattainable, yes. you know. Yes. Um, but, yeah, we, we made much better progress because of that as opposed to yes. the people who wanted to be the big fish in the small pond or something. Yes, you know? yes. Absolutely. So. Hey, before you go, because uh, I know you have to jet here, Phil, let mm -hmm. me ask you something. When it comes to body image, because we touched on that, mm -hmm. um, do you see uh, – what's your take on gender differences in bodybuilding – and in powerlifting, you know what I mean? Like, um, what are some of the, uh, like, are women more sensitive to, the, you know, the body image stuff? 
uh, even in powerlifting, or is that just for like you know figure and fitness? Uh, yeah. What do you think? It's it's I, I think so. It's changed some. Like yes, I definitely deal with with my females. I deal more of a oh my god, I gained five pounds. Uh, who gives a shit? <laughs> you know. <Right>. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And it's just me as a coach convincing them it doesn't matter, especially as a strength athlete. So you're five pounds heavier. Who cares? You're moving a lot more weight, yeah. you know. Um, so, but I mean that's changed. I mean you're seeing now. I'm seeing a lot more guys that are that are worried about that than I ever did before. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think I think it's kind of balancing out somehow. But we're also in the age where you're seeing guys wear skinny jeans and stuff. Um, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> it's true. You know, so. Um, but yeah, I think in in general, I think yeah, women do obsess about scale weight more. But I think they're fed that from a young age, um, whereas guys aren't as much. Like you need to be under 120 pounds. What? Yeah, why? Yeah, yeah that's it doesn't matter. You know that that means nothing. Why? That scale that's means good. Yeah. Uh, Ask the question. Why? For anyone. Yeah. For, well, exactly. And that's like I, my big thing is that scale means nothing in real life. The only time the scale matters is for a weight class athlete. That's it. Really. It doesn't matter as long as you look the way you want to look. It doesn't matter if that scale says 300 pounds. You know? right. It yeah. doesn't. It means, you know, the only time it matters is my weight class athletes. Okay, we got to lose five pounds because we need to make weight. Yeah. You know. Now, I would say so. as a coach, though, it's also your responsibility to, uh, like, if someone's putting on all the weight around their midsection and their oh, shoulders yeah. aren't getting any thicker, you know, it's like, I think you're doing something wrong. Let's talk about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the looks I'll get when I say, you need to get your fat ass on that bike for 20 minutes. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Go <laughs> right the bike. You're right. getting chubby. You yeah. <laughs> but you're so matter of fact, right? It's not like, oh, let's yeah. cry about it, you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very, I'm at that point now where it's like, I just say it how it is. And it's like, I'm, I'm not the hoorah type of personal trainer. Like, oh, you got this. No, you fucking get this or don't. Shut right, up. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Let's do this. If you don't want to do it, go somewhere else. Embrace yeah. reality. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Bill's <laughs> <laughs> Jim, crushing reality. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. <laughs> right. uh, That's a good tagline. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Strength Guild and crushing reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Cool stuff. All right. I'm going to throw a couple at you, Mike, before we make a break yeah. for Kelly. Um, kind of Phil sort of touched on this, but does obsession play a role? Because Kelly's going to educate us a little on obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, but can obsession be a positive? What do you think? Yeah, it's no, it's a good question, because I had this discussion with a client just the other day. And, and it's the same discussion I've had with multiple clients too, is if you're very type A, very driven, you know, people would say obsessed, that's not necessarily all like Phil was saying a negative, right? I know people have done that and, you know, we've, we've, we've both done that to get advanced, you know, terminal degrees and you kind of have to be a little bit borderline bonkers and cuckoo to start doing that kind of stuff anyway. Um, the hard part I think is when those behaviors no longer serve the goal that you're trying to get to and that you cannot appreciate sort of the things that you've achieved because of it. And then you keep trying the same approach with everything going forward. Oh. Right? And this is something I had to learn myself. Mm -hmm. um, so working a different job, you know, finishing master's, PhD, all that kind of stuff. You are in essence rewarded for being, you know, borderline obsessed and extremely driven. And the hard part then is because you have that neurologic sort of imprint that, hey, 
I did this set of behaviors before and look, I was successful. But you have to look at, you know, what was the cost on your body function and everything else. And is that sustainable going forward into the future? So I had to kind of, in terms of, you know, business and clients and that type of thing, learn how to do behaviors that are much more sustainable, but also at the same time, not be mad that I had sort of these tendencies to go one direction or the other. Right. So it's, I think it's the catch of at some point, maybe for shorter periods of time, I think that can be helpful. Those the sort of warning flags I get with clients is when they're trying to use that same set of behaviors for their current goals now, and it's either not working or the cost is becoming extremely high. You know, they're really tired. They feel burnt out. They're not able to do anything else. And you can apply this directly to training, right? If people are training so hard, they can't get anything else done. The rest of their life kind of falls apart. And I'm sure we can go down the list and look at that I've known some very successful lifters in the past who extremely successful lifting, but never realized that they could apply some of those behaviors, but maybe not to the same extent to the rest of their life. Right? The rest of their life was basically just kind of falling apart. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, right. I think the key is to, to take part of that behavior, but not to the same degree and apply it to the rest of your life. And then I also like to have, you know, what is the goal or the intention? And then also really measure what is the cost, right? Which is why I do heart rate variability, different things like that. And then I just present that to them and say, hey, you know, hey, you just had this, you know, meet. You, you know, a guy I worked with qualified for raw nationals. Awesome. Sweet. Um, someone else may be trying to do something similar, but they're doing a physique show and they're 15 weeks out and their HRV is just horrible. Okay, so now how hard do we want to push this? You know, we still have plenty of time, but, you know, your recovery just isn't there. You know, so trying to make sure that they're they're really in tune with what the cost is. The last point real quick is that people, when you become sort of hyper focused and even hyper vigilant, you tend to not look at any of the cost um, until it's kind of done and over with. And then a lot of times you're like, oh, man, I'm not sure I would have done that knowing that this was the cost. So I think just being very upfront about that. No, that's good. I was actually just watching a video. It's actually on the Iron Radio YouTube channel. It's Anthony Bourdain, and he's talking about it. Like, if you want to actually become a chef and be, be a food expert and this and that, and right out of the gate, he's talking about here's the cost. You know, in yeah. hours, yeah. in in humility, in you know the brutal. You know, yeah. And he he's really not sugarcoating it. And anybody who's ever listened to Bourdain knows he's like that. But I really liked it because he's like, you know, you're gonna have to get educated. You gotta know what's going on. It can be brutal hours. You're gonna lose this and this and this from your lifestyle. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, oh yeah. Um, and I, I put it up there because I thought that's just, yeah, that's not just for wannabe chefs. You know, that's for so many things. So that's that's probably good advice. I, I like what you said about you end up being, uh, like obsession can become misguided discipline. Like, nope, I'm doing this. Sure. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. It's like you're not assessing yourself. I and mean, we were just talking about brutal reality. You know, if after six or eight weeks there's no changes and you, all you're getting is tendonitis and, like you said, your HIV yeah. is tanked and you're not recovering, and what are you doing? You know, so you got to let go of that approach and and work smart, not just hard. You know, but yeah, yeah, and that's the biggest lesson I had to learn, even in lifting. You know, because a lot of lifts I do have to be kind of modified in different ways. I found that works better for my body. But the standard thing was, oh, you're you're a pussy if you don't squat heavy. You know, not that squatting heavy is bad at all, but 
if, you know, when I tried to do that, I was, again, being too aggressive, probably wasn't the best lift, my mechanics were crappy, it was too much stress. Every time I ever tried doing that, you know, eight weeks into it, I wasn't that much stronger and I felt like an utter train wreck. <laughs> right, yeah. So it's, oh, maybe I should try something different, but that took a couple of years to learn. <laughs> it, you know, that's a good point. Life lesson, sometimes you just, yeah, you, you got to live through that and be like, oh, I see, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for uh, sticking around here. We're go we're going to move to a conversation with Kelly now. Uh, and we're, she's going to just go through a couple of different disorders from the DSM. Again, that diagnostic manual that health professionals use, mental health professionals. Um, and you can see how much of this stuff applies to you as a person uh, from more of a clinical perspective. Okay, so as promised, uh, we're going to round out this episode by checking in with uh, my wife, Kelly. Kelly is a licensed counselor, and she's going to offer some definitions and some actual diagnostic criteria for some of these different things that we are just discussing. Uh, you know, narcissism, obsession, different body image issues, uh, and, you know, and what's the deal with these things. Now, this isn't in, um, out of some effort for you to diagnose yourself, but it is interesting to know what the diagnostic criteria are for these things because we've all known someone that was we felt was narcissistic you know in the strength sports or maybe obsessive and that sort of thing so let's start with that first one narcissism uh either a definition or diagnostic criteria something from the dsm there uh the dsm points to a pervasive pattern of grandiosity the need for admiration the lack of empathy beginning in early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts indicated by five or more of the following. So you have to have a grandiose sense of self, of self-importance, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, beauty, believes he or she is special and unique, can only be understood by somebody else in the same category, requires excessive admiration, has a sense of entitlement, unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment, takes advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends. Again, they lack empathy, unwilling to recognize or identify the feelings and needs of others, envious of others or believes others are envious of him or her, shows arrogant, haughty behaviors, snobbish. Okay, so how often do these things need to happen? Is there something like they have to illustrate or you know exhibit one of these things weekly for two or three months? Or Because the only thing I'm used to with a lot of these diagnostic criteria would be like eating disorders or something like that. So, Well, it's not really like that. It's a personality disorder. So these are traits that are there that usually don't really or that aren't really seen until early adulthood. Okay, so a lot of bodybuilders might be like this, a little grandiose. I've heard politicians might rank highly on these narcissism scales. Um, but I'm thinking you don't have to be like lacking empathy or purposely taking advantage of other people. Uh, does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, actually, these traits would be beneficial for bodybuilding. Okay, except for 
the fact that you don't have to take like I've seen a lot of advanced lifters, older guys in the gym. They see some young guys struggling, and they they're not going to get anything out of this kid. They just go over to help, right? So you can have some of these. You could be grandiose. You could be maybe be a little swaggering, and some of these things can be positive. But then there are some things on here that are very negative, and you really wouldn't have to do those things, I guess. Correct. I mean, you want maturity um, to oh. grow. Okay. Okay, let's move on to the next one then. Uh, and we were just, Phil and uh, Mike and I were talking about obsession and how important obsession is to reaching, you know, any level of goal. I mean, we talk about how it takes years and years to achieve intermediate to advanced status or beyond. So let's talk about obsession. I'm talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, not obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Okay, so this isn't in the same, is it in the same league as narcissism? Um, maybe we should just start with the diagnostic criteria. I was going to say, again, there is the possibility that it, the obsessive compulsive could be a personality disorder, but it could just be a normal disorder that somebody could learn to overcome. Are there dis different diagnostic criteria then? Yes, slightly. Okay, so let's let's start with the lighter version of this obsession. So obsession, um, you have recurrent persistent thoughts that become intrusive or inappropriate, causing distress. Uh, there's those thoughts are not simply excessive worries related to real life situation. There's an attempt to ignore or suppress the, those thoughts or an attempt to redirect those thoughts. Or there is the recognition that these thoughts, it, it's in your own mind or in your own making. The compulsions are repetitive behaviors. The person feels driven to react to the obsession, which is the thought. The behaviors are re to reduce distress or the behaviors are either not realistically connected to the thoughts, but to be re redirected away from the obviously excessive. A person must recognize the obsessions or compulsions that they're excessive at some point in order to overcome it. Okay, so if that's the minor one, uh, let's talk about the major one. Now, this becomes a personality disorder. This is a bigger deal. Right. It can be a personality disorder if they just can't let go of the rigidity of it. There's no flexibility. There's no letting go of those obsessions and or compulsions. So they're being so if our listeners have this, they're they're going to be stubborn like they can listen to what we're talking about and they're not necessarily. They yeah, they wouldn't necessarily recognize it. OK, um, this might be a hard question. How would you get them treatment then? Like if you're working out with somebody regularly and let's face it, there is a level of obsession, not, not this major level, this personality disorder. There's a level you've got to obsess quite a bit, maybe even be a little narcissistic, like we said before. If you're going to diet so strictly for half a year at a time and that kind of stuff. Um, but if somebody were to notice this stuff, you know, and people are spinning their wheels and it's kind of negative. They're not like uh, Mike, Mike and I were discussing they're it's not working like they're obsessed they're clamped onto something they're stubborn they keep thinking about it even if it's not that successful what would you suggest if someone's training partner saw someone and you thought maybe they were they were drifting into this bigger category uh good luck because oftentimes they don't recognize it 
So even if you see it as an outsider, I mean, all you can really do is actually show compassion. Okay, so am I right in thinking personality disorders are, they're part of who you are, so you just have to cope with them? Yep. Okay, well, there's some hard truth. All right, so in the interest of time, we've got one more, and I just want to touch on um, muscle dysmorphia or body dysmorphic disorder. Uh, just if you could just read down the criteria maybe, and then we could talk about gender issues because Phil and Mike and I were talking about gender stuff. Absolutely. Uh, the criteria for body dysmorphic disorder is preoccupation with an imagined defect in appearance. If a slight physical anomaly is present, the person's concern is markedly excessive. Next, the preoccupation causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And third, and last, the preoccupation is not better accounted for by another mental disorder. For example, dissatisfaction with body shape and size in anorexia nervosa. All right, so to me then, it, it looks like body dysmorphic disorder, this is just um, a body image issue, but this isn't necessarily about body fat or muscle mass then, or or is it mostly that? No, it it is not just that. There are specifics. Uh, some people will focus on one particular specific body defect. Okay, okay. Uh, we were talking about the gender thing. For example, I know in anorexia, it's it's very, uh, at least historically, it's been very one-sided toward women. And Phil was talking about, you know, how a lot of women are, they sort of get this message from birth about being thin or, you know, having these images put in front of them. And you said that's changing a little bit. But with body dysmorphic disorder specifically, is there a gender difference like there is with anorexia or some of the uh, eating disorders? No, according to the DSM, no, there's not. Okay. Well, I guess if it's not just about body shape then or size, I mean, so you, for example, somebody could, they could be freaked out about their ear size or I don't know, anything. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, you did mention that you thought the, the wide differences in the body image issues with eating disorders uh, like anorexia nervosa, that's starting to... Uh, move toward a, more men and sort of maybe not equilibrate but come closer to similar between the genders yes it's trying to balance out all right well thank you i appreciate that so there's some definitions and diagnostic criteria for everybody i think we're going to call that a week it's an extra long show it's going up a little bit later on sunday than usual but uh jam-packed with info i hope so uh, we'll see everybody next time Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's 
Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.